how true that song is. We need the Lord. I joke around with people and tell them that once in a while. You need the Lord. But we all need him, don't we? We do. We need him today. And I'm so glad that he is poised to be be present in our lives, poised to bless us, and he loves us today. This morning, before I start to to preach this message, I want to give some notice to you about this particular sermon. I want you to know that the subject matter of this sermon may not be uh, good for young children to hear because I am going to be preaching on some very strong biblical teachings and I wanted you to know that maybe the youngest uh, or young children might not be the best audience for this. Pastor Michelle is, as you know, she'll write curriculum that is companion with the message that I'm preaching so the whole church is getting the message. But she has, uh, she won't even touch on the more sensitive parts of this particular message. She has a wonderfully appropriate uh, teaching that will happen back there for the young children. I wanted to give you notice in case this would be a concern for you. So we thank you so much for that. I want to tell you this morning that you were made for love. You were created that way. And I want to let you know that because you are a human being, in order for you to be healthy and to thrive, you have a basic need to give out and to receive back love. It is in your design. The creator made you that way. I read this paragraph the other day. It says a touchless society can lead to failure to thrive and death within newborn babies. The perils of a touchless society became apparent in the early 1900s when Dr. Luther Emmett Holt, known as one of America's first and finest pediatricians, decided that parents were spoiling their children by cuddling and holding them too much. Good parents took notice and immediately followed this order, beginning a trend of hands-off parenting. Within just a few years, doctors across the nation started to notice a dramatic increase in infant deaths, particularly in seemingly healthy babies. It soon became apparent that these infants experienced failure to thrive simply because they were not getting enough human contact through touch. And there are hosts of studies of babies in orphanages concluding that those infants who suffered from touch deprivation, achieved only half of the height normal their age. That's quite a quote. And I had somebody after last night's message walk up and said, that explains why I'm short. (laughs) I thought that was a little bit cute, but... I will tell you that follow-up studies by several other scholars and scientists have confirmed that you and I were made for love. That human beings actually die for a lack of love, that they fail to thrive simply because they were not loved enough. And it is in what God did when he created you that you and I have as much of a basic need to give and receive love as we do to to receive food. It is necessary for us. I don't know any Bible scholars who would argue against the idea that love is a key theme in this wonderful book, the word of God. It is certainly communicated in this book that God loves people. And you can put that to rest. He loves you today. No matter who you are, what you've done, God loves you. And love is a very big subject. 
And that is just the way it is. Sometimes love can be very messy. Amen. Sometimes love can make us messy. It just is the way it is. Sometimes just communicating with someone can be pretty hard. I, I, uh, when I was a teenager, I heard a joke and it's just been one that's stuck inside of my little brain. And uh, I have stuff like that that happens to me. And I still think it's funny. So forgive me ahead of time if you don't think it's funny. Uh, it's not offensive, but I think it's funny. A man was walking on, on a California beach. And he was enjoying the beauty of it and enjoying the warmth of the sand. And he was barefooted. He's walking along and suddenly he stubbed his toe and it, and it hurt. And he looks down to see what he stubbed his toe on. And it was the neck of one of these really old-fashioned uh, lamps, like the, the metal kind of lamps. And he, he frowned a little bit, but he picked it up and he began to clean it off and get it clear. And, he, and, and was polishing and suddenly a genie pops out. The genie was not like your typical genie. He had an attitude, okay? And I don't know where he was from, but he had an attitude. And he says, look, yeah, I'm a genie. And he said, yes, you you found a lamp and I'm a genie, but I'm going to tell you straight up, I don't give three wishes. I'm going to give you one. And I've got some stuff to do, so hurry up. And so, like, that's kind of the attitude he had with the guy. And the guy got thinking. He said, come on, come on. I don't have all day. So finally, the, the man says, fine. He had always wanted to go to Hawaii. But he was deathly afraid of flying. And so he pondered and he says, I'll tell you what. I would like you to build me a bridge that goes from the mainland to Hawaii. I want a bridge that I can drive across so that I can go there and I can visit that beautiful state. And the genie says, are you kidding me? Are you nuts? Do you know how much concrete that would take? Do you know how deep the Pacific Ocean is and how deep I'd have to go? Do you know the design nightmare that you're demanding? No, no, I'm not doing it. Give me another wish. Hurry up. And so the guy's like, uh, okay, well, I've always wanted to understand women. I, I have trouble with that. I've always wanted to understand them. And the genie looked at him and said, how many lanes do you want this bridge to be? <laughs> I told you, it's a funny joke. It's a funny joke. And women, you know, it's just as hard for you to understand us guys. Amen. You can say that nice and loud because good grief. We're a mess. I want you, I want you to see, thank you. That's, man, I got you amening better than I have for a long time. But I want you to see the screen for just a moment and, and just, just to, the, the complication of just trying to communicate. But you have to learn how your spouse communicates. Tammy can say more than I roll in a sigh. I'll tell this is... What do you mean? I didn't say anything. Oh, yes, you did. <laughs> Took me two years of marriage to figure out she'll never tell me to do anything around our home. If Tammy wants me to do something, she'll ask me a question. It's from the question I got to stand there and figure out what does she want me to do. <laughs> Give you an example. Let's just say I leave a pair of my underwear in the middle of the bedroom floor. Which frosts my wife. That's her word when she's really angry with me. That just frosts me. And if I'm not frosting her, I'm driving her up a wall. That's another one. Kids would come in. Where's mom? She's up the wall with frostbite. That's all I know. 
And you won't believe what put her there, boy. It was that pair of underwear in the middle of the bedroom floor. You were looking at the most powerful piece of cotton on the planet. So I leave my underwear in the middle of the floor. Now, would she come to me in her frosted condition and say to me, pick those up. That's three words. Pick those up. Three words. Would she say no? Because that would be simple, direct, and right to the point. And at that moment, I would know exactly what she wanted from me. I would process that information and make a rational decision as to whether or not I would deliver the request. We would then be communicating at the highest human level, the way God the Creator intended it, through language. Tammy looks at me, looks at my underwear, and then asks, Are those yours? Well, I sure hope they are, otherwise i got a few questions of my own, but... Love can be messy, and it can be challenging to communicate with one another. And I know some of you wish that I'd let him talk a little more. You'll just have to buy his uh, DVDs. He is funny. That's a great guy. But it is, it is a challenging thing. And this is the third week now that we have been in our series, The Elephant in the Room, where we are acknowledging that the teachings of the Bible can make people pretty uncomfortable. In fact... Many people are offended by what the Bible teaches. And for many, Christianity has issues, big issues. In reality, a lot of people who willingly identify themselves as Christians also struggle with accepting what the Bible teaches about certain things. And love is one of those things. For them, it creates the elephant in the room. I want to remind you that my purpose in this series is not necessarily to defend the idea that the Bible is God's word, but rather to do my best to show you simply what it teaches. I will allow you the choice to either accept it or to reject it. But with God's help today, I intend to teach what the Bible has to say about some rather big elephants in the room. We're going to look at Matthew today, the book of Matthew, verses, uh, chapter 19, verses 1 through 9. Matthew, chapter 19. This is a self-contained incident in Scripture, and here's what it says. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to test him. And they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his mother and fa father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So what were Jesus and the rest of Scripture's teaching concerning who we each are, 
who we love and how we express love and what were the teachings and what are the teachings of Scripture on marriage. That is the elephant in the room today. And I go forward with trepidation, and I will tell you this is not a message that I ever looked forward to preaching, but I cannot just let it go by. If I'm a pastor who's worth anything to you as a people, I need to be able to know that I have taught all of the Bible and taught the truth to you as I see it and understand it. And I don't want to stand at the judgment seat one day and have you look at me and say, you never told us about any of this, Pastor Ken. So it is my responsibility today to teach about the elephant in the room, which is an an easy task. This whole series has been one that's challenging, but I still feel like this is what God would have me to do. I'm not complaining. I'm just saying it's not what I would have picked. Uh, But this is what I believe that the Lord would have me to preach. The passage I just read to you and that you read with me begins by telling us that some people were out to trip Jesus up. They were upset with him. So much of what he had already done and taught was not sitting very well with the established religious leaders of the day. In addition, there was the fact that so many people were absolutely being captivated by Jesus and his teaching and his leadership. And many of them were becoming followers and they left the teachers of the law and left the Pharisees of the day to follow Jesus. And this created in the leaders a desire to publicly embarrass and discredit Jesus in front of all so that they would come back to them. So to a question designed to trap Jesus, he gives an answer revealing the hearts of many of those who ask him. And at the same time, he elaborated on God's intentions for people. He summed it up and he confirmed some very important biblical teachings. I'm going to just stop myself long enough to say that one of the things that I hear often is about what Jesus did not say. What Jesus did not teach about. The fact that he did not say certain things has to do sometimes in a circumstance like this. And I'm going to get to this. It was to whom he was speaking. And so Jesus didn't have to regurgitate all of the teachings of the scriptures to the Pharisees who did nothing but study the scriptures. They knew what the Bible contained, what the scriptures contain. And so Jesus didn't uh, necessarily regurgitate everything. He summed up what was taught uh, to them since they were young uh, when he was answering their question. So from these, this response, I'm going to suggest to you uh, just three things uh, that Jesus spoke on and that the Bible teaches. First, and, and Jesus mentions this, The Bible teaches that each human being is created by God. That at the beginning, Jesus said, the creator, capital C, God, made them male and female. Now, I want you to know that I can provide a lot of biblical references for whomever may want them. So if you want to talk to me sometime after this sermon, I'd be happy to provide more biblical references. I don't have the time to put them all in the message that I'm preaching to you today. But I'll tell you that Jesus confirmed the fact that that God creates people. And when he does, they are born the sex that he intends for them to be born. Male. Or female. 
And you need to hear me say that the scriptures, uh, there's nothing in scriptures that even hints or suggests that God ever trapped a person in the body of the wrong gender. That just does not appear in the scriptures. The Bible does tell us that we are all made in the image of God, whether we are male or we are female. God loves us and values us equally. But the sex that we were born, according to the scripture, is the sex that God intended for us to be. And whatever anyone will ever do to themselves to alter their body, whether it is surgeries or drugs, etc., the DNA evidence will always point to the fact that they are the sex that they were born with. Not very long ago in our society, there was a gentleman who was celebrated as a hero, as brave. Because he changed his gender surgically and he changed his appearance and he changed his name and he now identifies as a female. He was a celebrity and and, an athlete and he made the decision in his mind that or, or he made a choice that he was going to have some changes affect his body. But here's the thing that you need to know that if someone were to draw his blood. The DNA evidence, as female as he may look and all the hormones that may be in it, the DNA evidence would still indicate that he is the sex he was born. God created him as he was, as he intended him to be a male. That is not a slam. That is not a judgment. But altering our bodies to change our appearance will not change who we were created to be in the eyes of God. And I need you to know that what Jesus confirmed when he said, have you not heard that at the beginning, the creator made people male and female. And there is nothing wrong with that. And we should be glad that we are what we are. Let me stress with you, too, that human beings were created with certain urges and appetites. For example, if you never felt hungry, you would not eat and take good care of yourself and you could die. There is a very rare medical condition where people do not have a hunger drive, and it's a very serious problem to have. But most of us, all, probably everyone here, have an all-too-active hunger drive. It's a wholesome and good thing, and it serves a good purpose. Amen? I'm glad for my hunger drive. There are times when it controls me a little too much, and I give in to it too much, and that's why I got fat, and, and that can happen to me. But the hunger drive in and of itself keeps me alive, and it's wholesome. It's not evil in my life. I'm grateful for it. I want you to understand that a sex drive is not ungodly, and it's not sinful. It comes from the Lord, and it is exactly what God wanted to put in you. It's wholesome. It's just as wholesome as a hunger drive. I grew up in a very legalistic church, and in that church, I began to come to the conclusion that something is wrong with me as I was entering into my teenage years. Something's the matter with me because I have these urges and desires, and they can't, they're dirty, they're filthy, and I was wrong. They were just exactly what God had put in me. And they're no, no more dirty, if you will, than a hunger or a thirst uh, drive. It's just there. You're a human being. You're made with that. 
So if you have a sex drive today, don't uh, look at it and say, it's the bane of my existence because it's what God created uh, in you. It is okay to, to acknowledge that that is there in your life. And in and of itself, a sex drive isn't unwholesome. We're not dirty because of an appetite that we have. The second thing that I want to point out that Jesus confirmed is God did put clear boundaries around indulging in sexual activity. Very clear boundaries. Haven't you heard, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Again, I am very happy to supply for you um, more scriptural references. But Jesus here confirmed what the Bible teaches on the proper circumstances for sexual activity. And please understand, again, he was answering a question that the Pharisees had uh, leveled at him who had spent hours and hours studying the scriptures and knew what the Bible taught about sexual uh, activity uh, in their lives. They understood it. Jesus here was confirming and summarizing what they already knew. And so the fact that he does not say certain things does not mean that Jesus in any way lessened the, the importance of the truth of scripture. Jesus did mention the beginning of creation. And a lot of this that he's giving to them is a quote from Genesis, both Genesis chapters 1 and 2, when he says, For this reason a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. My friends, the Bible clearly teaches, and it does not deviate on this, that the only proper place to participate in sexual activity is in the bounds of somebody you are married to, a man and his wife. It's always mentioned that way. It's always grouped that way. It is a man and his wife. Outside of that is sin. And the Bible makes that as clear as it can make it. Sex is only appropriate for a man and a woman who are married to one another. And the Bible makes that very, very clear. And so that being said, I, I want to just challenge you to remember that when, when Adam was created and God saw that he had no suitable helpmate, that what he created for him was a woman. And the first place you see the quote that Jesus gave, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother, came out of the mouth of Adam. And I need to remind you that it was always God's intention that it would be a man and a woman. That's who God created for him. And that's where sex was appropriate in a marriage. They had a marriage. They were married by God. And this biblical principle, I know, brings out a lot of strong uh, feelings and emotions. The fact is, sex outside of or before a marriage um, is is sinful, and that's just what the Bible says. And a serious reader of the Bible will see that it isn't unclear. And because this teaching brings us such strong emotions, I'm going to elaborate a little more. So please buckle up a second. I want to read to you something that Jesus said from Matthew chapter five, verses twenty-seven and twenty-eight. 
Jesus said these words, You have heard that it was said, Do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's Jesus. That's not some preacher's idea. And how's that for an elephant in the room, guys? In the society that we live in. We need to understand that Jesus in this conversation when he said, I'm equating lust with adultery, is the same conversation where he says, I'm equating hatred towards somebody uh, uh, with murder. So what he is trying to say to us is God isn't talking about just the letter of the law. Well, we did everything, but we didn't have sex. And therefore, it's not sin. God is talking about what is behind that law. And so to clarify it, men, he said, you can't look at women and lust after them without committing adultery in my eyes. And that's the Bible's teaching. That's not mine. So, men, it's not okay to to look at pornography. Men, it's not okay to situate yourself in a place where you're gawking at a woman's body and you are fantasizing about her. And the reverse is also true. That's what the Bible teaches us. God reserves sex for a very confined, beautiful, intimate thing. And God's intention for it was that it would be as confined as the scriptures I'm teaching are teaching us. That's an elephant in the room for Christian men. And a lot of men say, well, I cannot do that. I cannot live that way. And I want you to know, yes, you can. You can. We serve a God who, who can enable you not to lust after women if that would be your heart. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Listen, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers or male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. There is a word in the original language, the Greek language of this and many other passages in the New Testament where either the English translation will be adultery or sexual immorality or the word fornication. All of those are words that are translated from the Greek word pornea. And the original word means this. Every kind of extramarital, unlawful, or unnatural sexual intercourse, including fornication, sexual immorality, prostitution, from Freeberg's analytical lexicon of the Greek New Testament. And as I mentioned, the, the original word also refers to adultery and can be translated as such. So in this passage from 1 Corinthians, you, you see that God has put the parameters for sex into a very, very enclosed, intimate situation. And outside of it is sinful. You will see in this passage in 1 Corinthians the mention of homosexual offenders. And I will say to you that this is not a gray area in the Bible. It is so very clear what God has said about sex between people of the same sex. 
Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13 is an Old Testament passage. And it says, if a man lies with a man as one lies with a woman, both of them have done what is an abomination and they shall surely die. Over in Romans chapter 1, verses 27 and, and forward, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. It also, in that chapter, in that conversation, talks about women exchanging natural relationships with men for unnatural ones. That's, that's the wording in the NIV uh, with one another. And we need to know that the Bible clearly, and it never shifts, it never changes on this, my friends. The Bible clearly calls sex between the same sex, between people of the same sex, as something that God hates. It's an abomination. That's a strong word. It's something that's disgraceful in the eyes of the Lord. And this is what the Bible teaches and, and again, I'm not giving you my opinion. I am sharing with you what I'm reading in the scriptures. So, Pastor Ken, what's this mean for people who are engaging in sex with in, in, outside of the bounds of marriage? And what's this mean for people uh, who are part of what is now known as the LGBTQ community? Where does this leave people? And I'm going to say again that God simply defined marriage the way that he has defined it. But here's where it leaves all of us who are in violation of God's law. It leaves us in the same place as anyone who is living in conflict with the will and the word of God. It doesn't leave you in a worse place. It doesn't leave, make you worse of a person. It leaves you in the same place with all of us who live outside or in conflict, I should say, with the will of God. It leaves us with a God who creates us and who loves us and a God who lovingly offers his forgiveness and his grace and an opportunity for a good uh, life full of purpose with him. It, it, it leaves us with a God who would reach out to us and, and give us grace. I need you to hear me say something here. Speaking for this pastor, if I have anything to say about it, this church, every human being that walks through our doors will be valued and loved. They matter as much as anybody else does. Whatever they do, whatever they believe, they matter to the Lord God. Every person here will be shown the grace and the love of the Lord. Every one of us. It may, it's not my place to pass judgment on anyone. And I don't do that. Instead, what I intend to do is what I'm doing here today. I want to proclaim the truth. And I want to offer love and grace. And love the person. Because God loves the person. Amen. And I want to do that. I look at the list here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. And frankly, I see me there. For example, before I came to the Lord, I was a thief. Before I came to Christ, I stole from people. I would wait until everybody else in my class would leave. And I'd go rummage through their, their book bags and things. And I would steal, not because I needed it, but because I was a thief. Before I came to the Lord, that's who I was. I'm guilty of committing thievery. I'm guilty of slandering people. I have done that. 
I'm not proud of that. I'm not happy about that. I'm guilty of being greedy. I have done that. And again, all sins. And here's what I want you to see. My point is this. I'm grouped right in with everybody else in that list. I'm not better than them. I was a sinner in need of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I was somebody who was lost until Jesus found me. And so the fact that I was guilty of those things did not somehow push me away from a God's love and a God's grace. God doesn't look upon people who participate in sexual sin and says, I'm utterly disgusted with you. You're nasty. Get away from me. That's not the heart of God. God loves them just as much as he loved a thief and a swindler and a, and a liar and a slanderer. He loved me in that same way. And that's what he offers to all of us. And so we need to understand that although these are sins that I'm talking about, and although they are outside of the bounds of the will of God, they are not unforgivable. There is grace. And I thank God for the Savior who had the power to take me out of those sins of my life. I've not stolen for many years, praise the Lord. I thank the Lord for that. I haven't been tempted to steal. So don't go and lock your stuff up around me. I'm okay. I'm redeemed. No longer a thief. I won't take anything from you. But I want to go on record and say without apology that my God is a mighty deliverer. And he sets us free and he puts us on another path. And I'm very, very grateful for that. The third thing that I want you to notice in, the, in what Jesus said in his response, the third thing he did is he proclaimed marriage as sacred. Marriage is a sacred thing. Therefore, what God is joined together, can I stop right there and tell you that's why God puts such a, a, a strong emphasis on the value of marriage. God does the joining. And it is then that two become one flesh. And it is then a holy and righteous thing. And that's why God God calls it sin when anyone would break those relations, those bonds, and go out and participate in sexual activity outside of their marriage. It's a sin to the Lord. But that said, God has has, has declared and Jesus confirmed here that marriage is a secret, sacred thing. And when he said what God joined together, let no one separate, the answer is then why did Moses command that a man would give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? His reply is, is powerful. Moses let you do it because you had bad hearts. It's because of how hard your hearts were. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness or sexual immorality, and marries another woman, is committing adultery. Those are big words. Now, we live in a society that often devalues marriage, in my opinion. That is my opinion. We live in a society where marriage isn't as important. I've had people say to me, it's just a piece of paper. And I want you to know it's so much more than a piece of paper. It's a sacred act. Brought together by a a holy and loving God. So divorce is a big deal. It is. And God hates it. And the Bible says that. And I can provide the reference where he directly says, I hate divorce. But that said, I recognize 
that divorce happens in people's marriages. It happens. And marriages fall apart and families fall apart. And it is not greater than the grace of God. I came from a tradition. Again, actually, the Wesleyan Church had this problem. We were very legalistic. And I remember the days when divorced people were treated like second, second, second-hand citizens. Because you've been divorced, we can't ever let you be in a leadership position. Because you've been divorced, we can't really trust you. It, it was not good. So I need you to, to know that that's not where we are. That's not where I am because of the grace of God. Amen. God is a great God and he's a merciful God. Praise the Lord for it because all of us would be in hell without that. Let's just be honest about it. So divorce is a big deal to the Lord, but there is grace. It is God's intention, though, and the Lord makes this clear that a husband and wife stay in their marriage. And you know what? Every once in a while, it's a little messy. Amen. Some of us know all about that video, us men, when we're trying to, you know, figure out what our wives want from us. And and you women, God love you for living with men. Okay, just saying that to you. That wasn't very nice. Hey, I'm just kidding. That said, you know, all of these all of these sins that I mentioned, all of the sexual sins, even the atrocious sin of adultery. Is forgivable by the Lord. In fact, the Bible clearly teaches that the only unforgivable sin is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. That is the only sin that will not be forgiven. And just in case you're afraid that you've done it, here's what Jesus identified as blaspheming the Holy Spirit. He was casting demons out and helping people. And the Pharisees began to say, the only reason he's able to cast out demons is because he's full of the devil. And it's through the devil that he casts out demons. And that was an offense that would not be forgiven by God because the Holy Spirit enabled him to cast demons out. If you attribute the work of the Holy Spirit to the devil, I feel sorry for you. I feel sorry. You blasphemed and you're in, I can't help you. But other than that, there is not a sin that God wouldn't forgive. And the, Jesus made that very, very clear. We serve a good God. And a merciful God. I started this message out today. And I'm going to ask Joe to come to the, to the piano if you don't mind, Joe. And just find some chords to play or whatever you want to do. I'll be good. But I started this sermon out today telling you that you were made for love. And let me say this to you. No matter who you are, you need to please go home with this in your heart. No matter who you are, what you've done where you've been, what you think of yourself, there is a great God who loves you. You were made for love. You you are valuable to Him. Even if you're sitting here after listening to this guy preach what I preach, and I already have had some questions fired at me which were very good and very respectful, and I was glad to answer them. But even if you are sitting here and saying, I don't know that I agree with everything he says, I I need you to know how much God loves you. He values you. And you are worth so much to him. And listen, whatever relationship you ever enter into, it cannot compare to the relationship that you can have with Jesus Christ, the one who died for you, the one who loved you enough to shed his blood for you. He loves you today. You were made for that love. God made you in love and he made you to receive his love 
and you to reciprocate that love. We talk about that in this church. We talk about that that being that is a value. We we printed it and put it on our wall that one of our core values as a, as a church is to love God back. And I want you to love God today. I want you to know what it is to, to be in a relationship with Him and to be close to Him and to follow Him. And any sin that could be committed outside of blasphemy is a sin that can be forgiven. And so if something I have said has stirred something up with you, I need you to know that God loves you. And He will show His mercy to you the second you seek Him. That's who He is. Aren't you glad for that? Aren't you glad that God doesn't say, well, if you do these things, you're done. And, and if God were a, a human being, we'd all be done. Amen. Yes, I know Jesus is God, okay, and he's human. But I'm saying if God were just a human being, we'd all be done. But praise the Lord, he's not like man. He has capacity to love and forgive that we don't. And praise the Lord. So bow in your heads, closing your eyes. Is there anyone here who would say, you know, Pastor Ken, as you preach here today... I recognize that I just really, really want a strong relationship with Jesus, a strong relationship with God. And um, I'm, I'm just raising my hand to acknowledge that I'm asking him for mercy and forgiveness and for him to be my God. If you'll slip your hand up where I can see it, I just want you to know I'll be praying for you. Amen. Amen. I'm just seeking his forgiveness. Amen. God bless you. And I'm just seeking him to be my God. I want to follow him. I want to love him as I'm supposed to love him. Amen. And put your hands back down. Any others? Any others? This is what I want with God's help. I just want to love my God. I just want a good relationship with him. And I want to do right. Amen. You can put your hand down. Father, we thank you for your mercies and your grace and the power of your love. That we were made for it. I pray that we'll all be able to receive it and give it away and be godly people in all that we say and do. Thank you for your presence in our service today. And Lord, help us to walk away determined to love you in Jesus' name. Just before you go, it would be appropriate for us to celebrate today. Last week when I preached on judgment, there were six people who came to Christ, as far as I know, for the first time. And that's a good reason for us to thank the Lord. Amen. We serve a good God. Amen. Pray for them, those who came to the Lord. Pray for those who, who lifted their hands today and, um, and lift them up in prayer. Let's pray for one another, and let's just be the church. Let's love one another. Amen. Let's be like that.